From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. So you could look further back in history and scholars described evangelicalism as something that you can trace across denominations, through denominations, within different Christian traditions. And a distinction that ends up happening in the 20th century U.S. context is this movement becomes a movement in part as mid-century evangelical leaders develop institutions founded explicitly around this notion of evangelical identity. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to the show Isaac B. Sharp. He is director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. He's the co-editor of Evangelical Ethics, a reader in the Library of Theological Ethics series, and he is also the author of Christian Ethics in Conversation. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Isaac B. Sharp, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to chat today. I am so excited to talk about this book. As I was mentioning to you off air, I like to think that I stay on top of these sorts of questions, but I learned so much from your book, the way that you arranged it, the way that you both defined your terms, but also gave us new ways to think about these definitions. So I'm ecstatic to be getting into this conversation with you today. And the place that I'd like to start is with a differentiation that you make about evangelicalism that was new to me and I think may be helpful to shorthand for our readers what we're getting into. It's an evangelicalism that can be divided into, in its early years, either the Presbyterian style or the Pentecostal style. And I wonder if you can help my listeners understand, as you begin to look at this big E evangelicalism and you say, one way we can begin to analyze it is Presbyterian versus Pentecostal. Talk to us about some of the main stripes of difference that we find there. Yeah, this definitional question, right? What is evangelicalism and what varieties of evangelicalism exist out there? is fundamental to the book and is fundamental to anyone who studies or talks about evangelicalism. By now, it's a joke that anybody who starts the book about evangelicalism has to define their terms. And there is always some sort of disclaimer about how slippery and confusing and difficult to nail down evangelicalism is, right? Because this is this kind of nebulous thing that doesn't have the tie to concrete, definitive, universally agreed upon founding figures or institutions. There's one way to describe this is there's no such thing as the evangelical pope, right? There's no, you can't point to someone as the originator necessarily, although there are attempts to do so occasionally of evangelicalism. And so you get this proliferation of this evangelicalism as a tradition or as a movement or as an aesthetic or as a kind of paradenomination or a pseudo-denomination. And as you name, one of the distinctions, at least in the U.S. American context across the last couple of centuries that has arisen is between two kinds of streams. This is a both definitional and an existential debate among uh, evangelical scholars and outsiders who study evangelicalism about the various things that have gone in to making this American evangelical tradition. And two of the main wings, as you identify, according to certain scholars, are a kind of Presbyterian, Puritan kind of wing that tends to be the more Reformed or Calvinist or high doctrine tradition within evangelicalism. And then the more 
revivalist kind of strand, right? The more spirit-inflected, Pentecostal kind of tradition that is another way of distinguishing between those two is one tends to be more high church and creedal, and one tends to be more low church and, yeah, Pentecostal. And that these two things are combined in U.S. American evangelicalism is one of the ways that scholars that scholars end up talking about what evangelicalism is and how it has evolved over time. These kind of two strands that interact and sometimes bump up against one another and sometimes combine to make really interesting kinds of results. And what we're trying to do here is to characterize without caricature. And so I want to make sure this is clear to my listeners. One distinction that you make about this is if we think about the Presbyterian analytic, that's more a top-down approach. If we think about the Pentecostal analytic, that's a more bottom-up approach. And you say that there's a dynamism that is happening between these two approaches. And I wonder if you could briefly describe that dynamism over the last 125 years in American evangelicalism, particularly? Yes. So one of the ways that this manifests, this distinction or this tension combination, these multiple streams in evangelical circles, for instance, is at least in the 20th century context, you get the main leaders of many of the main leaders, gatekeepers, powerful figures in what became 20th century American evangelicalism as a movement were on the more reformed Presbyterian top-down side. And also, it tended to be the case often that the more reformed Presbyterian and sometimes and or Baptist traditions tended to produce the scholars who were writing about evangelicalism, which ended up sometimes leading to, in certain cases, an acknowledgement of a more skewed perspective that missed the lower church Pentecostal tradition. Another way that this manifested in the evolution of 20th century evangelicalism is, interestingly enough, the formation of this transdenominational evangelical movement in the 20th century tended to be led by the more top-down Presbyterian folks. And many of those folks initially tended to hold the more Pentecostal-style tradition of evangelicalism at arm's length, that this was occasionally approached as a less respectable kind of tradition. And so Pentecostals, Charismatics tended to be held more at arm's length in the formation of this 20th century evangelical movement. Now, the interesting di- an interesting dynamism, as you identify, that happens over time, though, is that despite that happening, Pentecostal traditions, Pentecostalism, charismatic style traditions in 20th century American Protestantism had a profound effect on the more popular evangelical laity, right? It was, it caught on. This is happening right now. There's lots of folks talking about non-denominational, charismatic, and or Pentecostal, sometimes not always fully Pentecostal-style traditions are exploding. They are growing. They are the hot thing among religious demographers and sociologists. And this makes for an interesting dynamic of this tension between what a tradition can look like from the top versus what it looks like from the bottom. And interesting interactions between those two things adds fascinating character to the the characteristics of this tradition. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He is Director of Online and Part-Time Programs and Visiting Assistant Professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. One of the things that becomes clear as the reader gets into the first couple of chapters of your book, The Other Evangelicals, is that we're talking about an attempt to get at the essence or definition of something that has been intentionally ill-defined. And let me explain what I mean. You lay out very clearly that because they were trying to build a movement that had public effect, political capital, that they intentionally left some of the main features of evangelicalism fuzzy, at least in the beginnings of the movement. And then as the movement gained public power, as it gained political power, 
they then began to build the walls and look inside and to winnow out those that were not sufficiently evangelical. Now, this is my paraphrase of your analysis. I want to make sure, first of all, do I have it right? And if not, are there things that you would say differently? If I do have it right, I have some follow-on questions. But let me ask first, have I got the basic thrust of this correct? Yes. So that's a great paraphrase of what I end up arguing about evangelicalism, mainstream evangelicalism, as what it became in the 20th century U.S. context. Now, there is one bit of qualification would be there are scholarly debates about the, the longer arc of evangelical history, if this is a tradition going further, further back, how much further back it goes, what elements you can find historically beyond the 20th century. And that's a complex set of questions that I had to bracket off a little bit for the book. But yes, in the 20th century context, this evangelicalism, the mainstream version, what it became, took time to sort out across the 20th century. And as a movement building exercise, it was profoundly successful. It was enormously successful project of developing this kind of lowest common denominator unification of essentially conservative Protestants into a movement that initially and often, because it happened in episodes, by necessity sometimes had to minimize some of the distinct denominational traditions and theological or social quirks of the different groups that were united under the evangelical banner, such that you would have, for instance, Calvinists and free will Christians who have profoundly different understandings of God and human nature and salvation and how those things work, who at times were both under this evangelical tent. And that's those profoundly different approaches to Christianity altogether united in this evangelical tent. And one of the initial kind of impulses around which that was organized was we are conservative Protestants as opposed to those liberal Protestants. But that's maybe getting a little ahead of the story. Well, and I really appreciate that you've begun to bring into the conversation these clashes of narratives, both at the level of historiography, how the histories of evangelicalism are told. And you go into great detail about this in the book, The Other Evangelicals. But you're also talking about an internal battle of narratives. And maybe let me put a fine point on it and then put the question to you. So as I read it, there's an internal battle of narratives that goes like this. Evangelicalism is an attempt to gather a group of believers around the Bible in a way that is historically orthodox and is reading the Bible in its literal sense as the Word of God. That's an internal narrative that is general, and the narrative says anyone can come and do that. All are welcome to come and do that. Versus a descriptive narrative that says, in practice, this has resulted in a set of communities that are built for and by the comfort of white heterosexual men. So as we move towards our first break, that's the dueling narrative I want to lay out to you. As I say that to you, does that sound like a tension that you recognize as part of the argument of your book? And if so, what are listeners to make about this very, I think, egalitarian and welcoming narrative that says all are welcome as long as you think these core principles are right versus this has been built for the narrow comfort of a certain population? Talk to me about that. Yes. So another way of phrasing exactly the tension you name across the 20th century U.S. evangelical context was, and I'm glad you named the Bible as a, a central kind of organizing thing, right? Because this is the one of the early motivating factors of the transdenominational evangelical movement that became mainstream evangelicalism in the 20th century was faithfulness to the Bible, right? There, it's it built on the advent of debates between the fundamentalists and modernists over the Bible and interpretive methods for the Bible and specifically historical criticism and the rise of historical criticism. Evangelical movement in the 20th century ends up defining itself in opposition to li more quote-unquote liberal approaches to interpreting scripture, right? So then anyone who can agree to the authority of the Bible, be it infallibility or inerrancy, these are the terms that evangelical 
leaders tend to rally around in the 20th century, meaning the Bible is without error. There are no errors in the Bible. For instance, the problem then becomes consistently and regularly, perennially, in fact, across the 20th century, what to do about the fact that varying Christians from varying traditions come together under this banner, agree, yes, we affirm the authority of the Bible, and then reach profoundly different conclusions about interpretations of that inerrant Bible. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He is director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking to Isaac B. Sharp. He is director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Well, in the first part of our conversation, we started to talk about how this idea of evangelicalism in America in the 20th century particularly has been a bit of a moving target both politically and intentionally on the part of those that wanted to build evangelicalism as a movement. I want to make sure that my listeners understand that part of that building of the movement wasn't simply trying to keep evangelicalism a kind of active conversation piece at the heart of Christian discourse. It was also involved in the building of particular institutions, magazines and schools, and even personalities became central to the evangelical project as we now know it and reflect on it. I wonder if you could speak about the importance of these institutional moves for the founding and buttressing of evangelicalism in American discourse. The institutionalization piece was crucial, I think, for a number of reasons, one of which gets at the heart of the, these definitional complexities around evangelicalism, right? So you could look further back in history and scholars describe evangelicalism as something that you can trace across denominations, through denominations, within different Christian traditions. And a distinction that ends up happening in the 20th century U.S. context is this movement becomes a movement in part as mid-century evangelical leaders develop institutions founded explicitly around this notion of evangelical identity, right? We are evangelical. This is an evangelical institution. This is not just, for instance, a Presbyterian institution or a Reformed institution or a Pentecostal institution. This is an evangelical institution. and to loop back to a little bit of our previous conversation, and anyone who rallies around understandings of the Bible as infallible or the Bible as inerrant or the authority of Scripture, for instance, or revivalism, right? There's these evangelical distinctives that tend to be rallying cries is welcome to come and participate or to read. And some of the crucial ones that end up becoming determinative bellwethers for 20th century evangelicalism are organizations with evangelical in the name, like the National Association of Evangelicals and Christianity Today, the magazine or Fuller Seminary. And an interesting thing early on that I end up talking about a bit in the book is that these institutions explicitly are developed as counters to the more mainline progressive kind of Protestantism 
as an understanding that there is something lacking, right? So you get a figure like Billy Graham, who is envisioning Christianity today as the conservative, the safe evangelical conservative version of that liberal, heretical Christian Century magazine, for instance. What's interesting to me, and I want to linger with this for a few minutes, an institution, if we think about like the building of a school, okay, a school has doors, which means some people are on the outside of the school, some are on the inside, and the school can choose who gets to come in through those doors and study. A magazine has editors, and editors get to say, okay, these words get to appear in our magazine, these words don't. And so I want to ask you about the way in which gatekeeping goes hand in hand with the building of these institutions. These were not simply to create sort of permanent spaces of conversation. They were also, in my reading, designed to create very powerful levers of exclusion. Now, when I say that to you, do I, am I overplaying the hand? Have I said too much and I'm going too far? Or would you say that's an accurate characterization of what evangelical leaders were trying to do? And if I've got it wrong, how would you restate it so that it's more clear? Yes, this is an important tension that has come up in several discussions and interviews that I've had about the book, actually, because I am making the case that there are and were these powerful evangelical gatekeeper figureheads that ended up de facto deciding what counted as evangelical orthodoxy by making ad hoc judgment calls about what gets printed, about who can teach at certain seminaries, and about how to make those decisions, right? So you get, for instance, in evangelical institutions like a school or National Association of Evangelical or Evangelical Theological Society, for another example, you have statements of faith, right, that you can sign. And that can be one way of doing the gatekeeping. Or to your point about magazines like Christianity Today, what gets printed, who can submit articles, what doesn't get printed, what kinds of arguments are featured in the pages is a powerful gatekeeping tool. And I am making that case. The tension that you correctly identify of this question between how far is too far in overplaying the role of gatekeepers, or maybe even the intentionality of gatekeepers is a tension that I have discussed with several people. I am making the case that these Gatekeeping rulings over the 20th century context, even if they were not intentionally about power plays or about excommunicating dissenters and were putatively at times purely about theology, right? The determination that someone, someone's conclusion about a social, ethical, political issue means that they have gone too far for safely evangelical that those putatively theological decisions were at least also about power. This is a tension that I try to walk because this is, you know, the humans are complex. We are complex. And I, I try to walk a line where I don't always just attribute these decisions to just pure naked power plays and not allow for the possibility that there were theological motivations. But part of what I'm trying to expose with the book is that purely theological or sociological or what have you definitions that define evangelical identity in one way, at least were also at times about power. Another fascinating aspect that really becomes very clear in your book, The Other Evangelicals, is the importance of polling in this question of evangelicalism. And so if we look at the Gallup group or the Barna group or Pew Research, we get a sort of 30 to 40 year sweep of people who are going out into the field asking representative samples about their evangelical identity. And that itself becomes a kind of moving target too. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how polling has factored into the evangelical identity, particularly in the past 50 years. Polling was crucial and, in fact, was arguably determinative in what became evangelical identity because pollsters and pundits became the go-to sources of authority for broader public understanding about evangelicalism and what evangelicalism is, right? In the book, I trace a little bit of this 
back to the quote unquote year of the evangelical in 76 with Jimmy Carter. And all of a sudden you have this question, who is born again? Who are these evangelicals? And this kind of frantic search for information about that, which also, I argue, ended up setting the tone for the narrative and in some ways defining what it meant to be evangelical in the broader public consciousness, but also for scholars. You have this interesting back and forth of debates over the notion of evangelicalism and what it is, and polls and pundits and pollsters ended up influencing that debate, ended up painting pictures of evangelicalism as here's how many evangelicals there are, and here's how we know that. And part of what I'm suggesting is that their work in deciding what questions to ask, in deciding who counts as in and out of the evangelical category, are complicated. They're they're complicated, and there's interactions there between evangelical insiders and outsiders, evangelical power brokers who are involved in setting some of these rubrics for what it means to be evangelical. Again, back to the comparison that without an official roster of evangelicals, you have to find some way to sort them. And sometimes it ends up being, pollsters end up doing it denominationally, where if someone's a member of a certain denomination, that's a quote unquote, traditionally evangelical denomination, then they're an evangelical. But that's complicated. The United Methodist Church is a great example of a tradition that includes streams that might be described as more progressive liberal mainline and streams that might be described as more conservative evangelical right within one denomination. So pollsters definitely played a role. And yet also, it's a complicated story that has questions of power and influence involved. And I'm hoping a bit of that comes through in the book. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He's director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Okay, I'm going to now ask a kind of blue sky question. And after this, we're going to begin to turn into the more specific, particular analyses of your book, The Other Evangelicals. If I go to the grocery store and I pick up a bag of cookies, I can look on the side of the bag and I can read a list of ingredients that the producer of that bag of cookies assures me is in that bag of cookies. I can also look on the side and see if that bag of cookies has been declared kosher by various rabbinical councils. I can send this to underwriters' laboratories, and they can do an analysis and test and see whether or not the thing contains what it says it contains. But also, the person who puts that package together can put a big, splashy thing right on the front of the package that says, new and improved, or this is the traditional flavor. And so I want to ask you, to what extent are we actually talking about the contents of the package of evangelicalism? And to what extent are we talking about the branding on the outside of the package of evangelicalism? We, in some ways, are talking about both simultaneously. And I will say a bit more about that. But yes, it is, it is both and. Because it's both and, that has led to another tension. So this is the recurring theme here, maybe the tensions and paradoxes of the evangelical tradition or of any religious tradition, right? But another paradox or tension that constantly recurs perennially in the 20th century context in particular among this thing called evangelicalism is what it is branded or what it's presented or what the gatekeepers and power brokers suggest that it is or want it to be and what is actually there on the inside. And that has led to some of these debates or power struggles or problems and tensions or rifts in the evangelical world. This dis- this occasional discrepancy between the move by those at the top to exert a definition on the movement and the complicated reality of an internal kind of pluralism that happens within the evangelical movement where it is the case that or was the case that you have these complex traditions that have been united under this quote unquote big evangelical tent And they have brought their own theological, social, political quirks 
or pet projects or pet emphases with them. And that leads to complications. And part of what I end up suggesting across the book is that at certain periods of time, that tension led to these efforts to tighten the belt, so to speak, right? To exert a more, to go to the food metaphor, to exert a more precise recipe on the evangelical mix, right? To say to, that those at the top look at the ingredient list and say, well, wait a second, there's not supposed to be nuts in this. We're going to have to do something about that. And that is a really good, actually, a really good metaphor where you have over time this recognition by the packagers or the cooks or what have you of evangelicalism, recognizing that the ingredients have gotten a bit unwieldy and that there is something that they did not anticipate maybe that's in there and what to do about that. And sometimes the ruling was there will be a tension of these flavors and we can make peace with that around certain discrepancies or differences among those who are inside. And other times the decision was one of these has got to go. So I don't want to overstrain the food metaphor, but I am going to stay with it for just a moment. So listeners that are my age in their 50s or older, or maybe listeners who have heard this story, they'll be aware that in the 1980s, Coca-Cola decided to introduce a flavor called New Coke and abandon its earlier formulation of the product line. There was a tremendous backlash, and then within months, Coke reversed direction and said, we're still going to market New Coke, but we're also going to be making available again original flavor Coke. So in this metaphor, we can think about the first majorly excluded group from evangelicalism, the liberal wing of evangelicalism, which in this metaphor is the kind of new formulation and a rejection of that and a, an insistence that we're going back to the original flavor of Christianity. And what that does narratively is it helps us to paper over the fact that in this example, the formulation of Coca-Cola had changed drastically a number of times prior to the introduction of New Coke. But then suddenly there was the ability to look backwards and say, we're going back to what we've always had. I wonder, does this feel like an apt metaphor to you? And if so, talk to us then again about the rejection of liberalism and how that helped to further the sort of solidification of the evangelical consciousness, identity, brand, whatever it is that we're calling it. Yes, it definitely works, actually. The metaphor, we're not stretching it too far yet for a number of reasons, one of which is this historical and historiographical move becomes a really potent one in internal definitional debates where you get a almost constant impulse among 20th century evangelical thinkers to hearken back to something, whether it's early 20th century evangelicalism or even further back to the reformers. You have certain folks who will say this evangelicalism started with the Reformation and that we are hearkening back to the original impulses of the Reformation. That is the, the true evangelical spirit. And we want to go back and grab that and recall that. Some of the problem, though, is that that can be done a critically and a historically that does not acknowledge the change over time. Sure, continuities, but also change over time among 20th century evangelicalism or that distinction between earlier and into 20th century evangelicalism. And that's in the framing of the book, the rejection of liberalism is the move that has some of those impulses already built in, where it is a suggestion on the part of the quote unquote founders of mid-century evangelicalism to suggest that they are doing nothing but recovering historic Christianity from these liberals who are rejecting historic Christianity, right? The liberal Protestant Christians who said things like Darwinian evolution is compatible with Christian faith and or historical study of the Bible actually helps us understand our Christian faith better. The early evangelical impulse in terms of 20th century, the organization of a movement was to suggest those things are not true Christianity. And we are using the evangelical name to specifically suggest that what we are doing is recovering the true or defending the true historical Christianity from these defectors. And evangelical became the label that described that impulse. What fascinates me about this, and you use this example in your chapter on the sort of rejection of liberal evangelicalism, 
is the case of Karl Barth. So Karl Barth was a German theologian who explicitly was trying to reject the kind of liberal, scientifically-based historiography of the Bible and get back to, the, to a kind of fideistic, a kind of faith-founded reading of the Bible and doing of theology. Nevertheless, even though he was trying to move away from what he took to be a liberalization of Christianity, there were American scholars and American evangelicals who made him basically the cause celeb of liberalism. So if you could briefly talk to us about how even a person who described himself as neo-Orthodox, Karl Barth did, was rebranded as a liberal in the American context. Bart is such a fascinating example because Bart offers an incredibly helpful test case in sorting 20th century Protestants. This is a regular conversation I have with Bart scholars and folks across the theological spectrum of an interesting thing you can do in the 20th century context, at least among U.S. Protestants, is sort people based on what they think about Bart, right? Like it's an interesting rubric. And Bart is a fascinating example for determining and watching the evolution of evangelical identity because Bart is not originally, doesn't emerge originally from within this U.S. context, right? And a fascinating example of the linguistic shifts here is Bart uses language like evangelical in the original German to describe certain things that he's kind of, that he's doing and is received in European contexts as as extremely conservative, as making a theologically incredibly conservative move, right? A rejection of modern traditions and trends in theology to move back to something previous, back to harkening back to the Reformation, such that certain scholars were describing Bart as like German fundamentalism. And yet, that was not the reception that Bart received among 20th century evangelicals. Bart was treated as a liberal because. Bart rejected the prevailing understanding of the Bible that was becoming determinative for evangelicals. Now, Bart's super complicated because Bart had a complicated relationship to historical criticism himself, but was not adopting this kind of inerrancy language where the Bible is something without error and the Bible is the ultimate be-all, end-all authority that cannot be, that is the highest authority for the Christian faith. Bart was not in line with that, and American evangelicals, American evangelical thinkers thus rejected Bart as a liberal, uh, which is such a fascinating example because there are those non-evangelical scholars who have made the argument that Bart retained some of his liberal impulses as well. And so this is the complexity of Bart, right, is where to sort Bart on the theological spectrum becomes really telling. For the sake of evangelicalism, though, Bart does become a kind of cautionary tale where Bart, you get that folks like theologians like Cornelius Van Til, who's this very reformed very influential evangelical thinker in the 20th century context who, who suggests that Bart is just orthodox sounding modernism, that is actually Bart is very dangerous, according to Van Til, and then thus subsequent generations of evangelicals, because it sounds like Bart is conservative in the true classic Christian Protestant reform sense. And yet is actually sneaking in this, this sneaking liberalism. So Bart becomes a very dangerous figure, in some ways more dangerous than the true liberals because of the fact that he may be sneaking it in the back door. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He's director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Isaac B. Sharp. He is Director of Online and Part-Time Programs and Visiting Assistant Professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Well, 
in our conversation so far, we've talked about the kind of political and public force of identifying as evangelical, and we've begun to talk about the ways in which that political and public movement gained traction, gained numbers, and then began to close its ranks and push various members out as not being sufficiently evangelical. And probably the most complex and fascinating of all of these test cases might be African-American Christians, oftentimes identified as the black church, but we could also identify them as black evangelicals because they, they hold some of the core tenets that evangelicalism holds. Nevertheless, they have often felt either actively excluded or, we might say, passively unwelcomed. And this is both at the level of actual engagement with the institutions of evangelicalism, but also at the level of polling. But I want to start out by asking about those institutional inclusions and exclusions. Where do African-American Christians fit in evangelicalism in the late 20th, early 21st century? A fascinating question that has a number of answers that could go a number of different ways, right? Where do Black Christians fit in this story, right? So a fascinating thing that happens among scholars of, of American religious history is the suggestion that many, if not most, of the historically independent Black church traditions, the, what we are describing with the probably too reductive label, the Black church, were historically evangelical by any theological definition. If you use the classic theological definitions of what it means to be evangelical, then the argument by many scholars goes that one of the most significant and consistent repositories of evangelical faith, using it in that way, is the Black church tradition with its emergence significantly in Baptist and Methodist traditions heading back towards in the wake of um, the Great Awakenings, for instance. And that's a complicated thing and becomes even more complicated in the 20th century context, I suggest, because of this emergence of evangelical identity as this kind of like public force and what it means to identify with evangelicalism, such that you get scholars suggesting, yes, evangelicalism by theological definitions includes the black church tradition. And yet, the interesting turn here is that historically, Black Christians have been reluctant to identify as evangelical. So here's one of the interesting quirks that comes about when polling starts to crop up, right? This question of who is an evangelical who identifies as evangelical, and you get Black church traditions, Black Christians who don't generally identify with the label, yes, I am an evangelical. Part of what I end up suggesting is that is because of a recognition of something that was going on with this evolution of evangelical identity that this was the formation of a movement in the 20th century context that was by and for white Christians, right? If it, and so this is also an example of where that question of purely theological definitions, this gives the lie to that a little bit, right? Because if it was the case that it was just rallying around a theological definition in the 20th century U.S. context, then the Black church traditions should have been first on the list of those who were invited to this transdenominational evangelical movement, and they weren't, right? And so you get, it becomes a kind of double-edged sword where the chicken or the egg, they weren't invited, but weren't interested. It traces back. You, you get the historian Mark Knoll arguing that around the time of the Civil War is this split between these traditions of Black theologically evangelical Christianity and white evangelicalism. And despite holding similar theological views, never the twain then again shall meet. And it is largely because of white evangelical racism and support for slavery and support for the racist status quo in this country. It becomes a really interesting phenomenon in the 20th century context, I suggest, because over time, Despite not having open invitations to the Black church traditions to join the evangelical tent, it does become the case that Christians of color, Black Christians, end up in these evangelical institutions for whatever reason. Either they agree with the theological 
definitions that form the institution or they are raised in some kind of institution. And that these folks, these black Christians who do identify as evangelical are a, a fascinating aspect of this evangelical story. And in fact, a woefully overlooked aspect of this evangelical story for many of the reasons that are bound up in what I just described, right? This assumption that evangelicalism is a predominantly white movement in its mainstream iteration. That is true insofar as it goes. And the story is more complicated than that. Well, you've mentioned the sort of sweep of interests of the black church, which overlap with historical Christian abolitionism in the American context and in the wider sort of colonial context, but also strands of economic and political egalitarianism, sort of making the playing field level for all political participants. That's been a part of a kind of progressive Christianity. And so there's an overlap here between the black church movement and another excluded group that you talk about, the progressive Christians. And when we're talking about this, listeners, if you want a handle of what we're talking about, go and pick up a copy of Sojourner's magazine, and you'll get a kind of briefing, just a brief overview of what progressive evangelical Christianity looks like in the late 20th, early 21st century. But talk to us now about the kind of exclusion of the progressivist evangelicals from this movement. What was gained by excluding all of that rich history of abolition and political and economic egalitarianism? This move, right, this effort to define evangelicalism as closely aligned with political conservatism has a complex history in that the founding figures of the 20th century movement were rejecting theological liberalism in part, but they were also rejecting the theological liberals, the Protestant liberals that they characterized as godless socialists, right? Who They're also rejecting the progressive politics in some way. And this is, folks have worked on, historians have worked on this significantly to narrate this story of the pre-emergence of the religious right, right? So you get this, the emergence of the religious right on the scene, and it's one of the most famous and infamous, perhaps, examples of evangelicals in the public sphere and is in part the, you know, what folks think of when many folks think of when they think of evangelicalism. The interesting part of the story that I'm trying to surface is that there was for a time a robust movement. Sojourners is a good example of something that emerges out of this movement to argue that one need not align with political conservatism to be theologically evangelical such that you get folks like Jim Wallace or the recently departed Ron Sider, who argue we are theologically evangelical. We hold to the authority of scripture. We do not reject that. We just believe that, in fact, not even in spite of, but because we take the Bible so seriously, that for us has political implications that fall on the more progressive end of the spectrum. The problem for these folks in one way was pushing back against a tradition, at least in the 20th century evangelical context, that had already had a kind of de facto political conservatism built in. Now, that being said, the movement was catching on and was growing, and it was a significant that throughout the 70s and into the 80s, there was robust and growing movement and debate over what evangelical politics might look like and whether it could be a kind of multivalent thing where there could be a progressive wing. And the story, unfortunately, for the progressive evangelical folks, the rise of the religious right pretty much ended that. Now, this is another tension that emerges in the book where when I'm talking about groups like progressive evangelicals, I'm not suggesting that there are not progressive evangelicals out there anymore. But I am suggesting that there was this movement of a what became known as an evangelical left that was a progressive political option, and it was a robust political option for evangelicals, and that was steamrolled by the rise of the religious right, and it was vilified and undermined and demonized as not really Christian, and it was incredibly effective. It was an incredibly effective way of casting aspersions on their own inter-evangelical disagreements, those who disagreed with the more conservative evangelicals. And part of what I end up suggesting is that is a crucial part of the story of how 
evangelical identity became so closely aligned with now it is closely aligned with to be evangelical in the minds of most is to be politically conservative. And there's something to that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He is director of online and part-time programs and visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Today, we're talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Earlier in the conversation, I suggested a narrative reading of, of evangelicalism that it was demonstrably a movement built by and for the comfort of white heterosexual men. And that really comes to the fore in the last two chapters of your book, The Other Evangelicals, when we look at feminist and gay Christians. And so as a way of framing this, I want to ask about the rise of a kind of movement to establish an ideal of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. I wonder if you could speak briefly about that and from there, we can get into some of the particulars of these chapters. There is a lot of discussion these days about evangelical notions of gender and sexuality. It is a popular subject in part catapulted into the public consciousness by folks like Kristen Dumay with the fantastic book, Jesus and John Wayne, which traces this understanding of gender essentialism as, and particularly a defense of this rugged Christianity, this manly man Christianity as a really determinative factor in the shaping of evangelical identity. Part of the story that I'm telling in the evangelical feminist chapter and related a bit in the gay evangelical chapter is the underside of that story or the flip side, the backside, the the hidden behind the scenes story of that in that there was in some ways related to the closing of possibilities around progressivism. There was for a long time in 20th century evangelical circles and on into today. There are so there are definitely the case that there are evangelical egalitarians to this day, but there was an evangelical feminist movement that was a robust and growing movement that made arguments like we affirm the authority of the Bible and meet all theological criteria of the definition of evangelical. And yet we interpret three or four passages throughout the Christian Bible differently than those who would suggest that only men can be leaders, only men can be pastors, that women must be subservient to men and wives must be subservient to their husbands. And the suggestion was that they reached different conclusions about a few verses here and there, right, across the Christian Bible. And those folks got marginalized so effectively that they have been almost totally forgotten in current debates around evangelical ideas of gender and sexuality and family, that it's, this is fairly recent history, like up into the 80s and 90s, that is almost completely forgotten in those discussions that there were evangelical feminists who were unabashedly feminist and explicitly evangelical. And as you name this biblical manhood, womanhood thing, it became the only game in town. One of the most interesting parts of this story that I try to surface a bit is that movement, the complementarian movement or the biblical manhood, womanhood movement was a reaction to evangelical feminism. It emerges as an effort to discredit and push out evangelical feminists. And this is this one is not even any sort of conjecture. The folks who were behind groups like the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood made explicit what we are trying to do is stop this dangerous feminist ideas that are spreading among evangelicals, and we must root this out. And they did a really good job at that. They really were effective at popularizing their ideas and at undermining evangelical feminism such that then you get by the dawn of the 21st century, it becomes the case that complementarianism is becoming the kind of only game in town in terms of evangelical gender roles in family life. So I want to step back now and make a general observation and ask what you think of it. So if we look at conservative Judaism, we can look historically and say conservative Judaism arises in the wake of a movement known as Reform Judaism. 
that prior to that, we really don't have something that identified itself as conservative Judaism. And so we see a dynamic there where there's a reaction to a liberalization by tightening the walls and really making that core more solid. Are you suggesting in the grand sweep of this book, The Other Evangelicals, that we're seeing a similar dynamic in evangelicalism, that it really arises as a reaction to the developments in more kind of modern thought, modern biblical criticism, that it doesn't exist prior to these sort of liberalizations? Or are you making the suggestion that there really is something that we can trace historically back beyond the beginning of the 20th century that we could identify as demonstrably evangelical? This is a complicated question that is a, a, a tough one that I end up bracketing a bit in the book, right? That he, I had to have some sort of starting point or it would have gotten even more unruly and sprawling. And so I, this question of the 20th century became my main focus. If I have to venture a thesis on this, it is probably a little bit of both ends. I think it is at least the case that for all intents and purposes, the mainstream version of evangelicalism now, say, in the 21st century U.S. context, is traceable to this development that partially, as you name, in the 20th century context of a movement that is born among certain kinds of Protestants in reaction to modern developments. Yes, right. This is something is happening here that I would suggest is something new in some ways, right? There is something happening here that to be evangelical now in the 21st century U.S. context, evangelical identity is mostly traceable and continuous with developments in the 20th century and that there is something there. This question of the longer arc of continuity is incredibly difficult and complex one in terms of whether or not evangelicalism, that the current version of it can be traced back further than that, right? Maybe in certain respects, right? In certain kind of theological emphases, there are, they certainly did not just emerge in the 20th century context. The Revivalism, for instance, remains a definitive kind of feature of what folks describe as evangelicalism, and that goes back further. But so it's a yes and, I guess, right? That there is this questions of continuity are complex. And I didn't set out to answer specifically that question of the previous continuity. And yet, in some ways, I am making an argument that in the 20th century context, you have the evolution of this thing called evangelical identity that becomes a new kind of thing. And just as one kind of anecdotal, interesting example, you get an interesting linguistic example when from cross languages, you get the development in the German language of a new word to replace the previous word that was evangelical in German to name the American evangelical movement, right? This recognition in kind of cross-cultural comparison that there's something different going on such that Germans in the German language now have a word evangelical as opposed to Joengelisch, or I think is the earlier German version. So you get this linguistic development that is reflecting this reality in some ways, I suggest, right? That there is some, that this evangelical movement in the 20th century U.S. context has become something different. And the theological continuities may be there in some respects, but there's something else going on. And part of what I am trying to do in the book is tell the story of how this identity became what it did. Well, Professor Isaac Sharp, I loved your book, The Other Evangelicals. I learned so much from it. It is so clearly written. It is so patiently clear in its analysis. And as I said at the outset of the conversation, I try and stay on top of these kinds of historical questions and historiographic questions. But you showed me new ways of thinking about these dynamics and new ways of analyzing this history that I thought that I knew well. I benefited from reading your book. I know that my listeners will benefit from reading your book. Thank you so much for the time it took to research and write the book, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. We've been speaking today with Isaac B. Sharp. He is Director of Online and Part-Time Programs and Visiting Assistant Professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. 
Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The Other Evangelicals, a story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians, and the movement that pushed them out. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.